Abstract Doctors podcast special, the Abstract Veterans Series. Today, Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Seal speak with Dr. Laura Manning-Frank. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. Visit the Abstract Doctors for information and upcoming podcasts. The Abstract Doctors podcast. The doctors are in. Open up your mind and say ah. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another fun episode of Abstract of the Abstract Veteran Series, where we look at the various uh, different studies within the limbic sensi. We like to bring the researchers on, hear what they have to say. Along, I'm Char Gatlin, your co-host, along with my other co-host, the always enigmatic Dr. Ron Seal. We're going to attempt once again to make science fun and understandable for the masses. And I say attempt, attempt doing it, but I think so far we're we're doing pretty good. So with that, we'd like to bring on our guest for today, Dr. Laura Manning-Frank. Good morning, Dr. Well, I'm just going to go with Laura on this. Good morning. How are you doing Perfect. this morning? I'm doing fine. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. Thanks for uh, joining us this morning. I'm out here in Montana, so I have it early, the, the 07 out here, opposed to the East Coast time. But hey, that's what, <laughs> that's what we do. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, open up with telling us a little bit about the research that you're doing. Um, okay, well, um, so my uh, background is in cognitive neuroscience. Um, I'm not a clinician. I'm an experimental psychologist. Um, I study how the uh, brain produces the mind. So uh, things like perception, memory, um, decisions, and what are the neural underpinnings, how the uh, brain processes underneath those processes. Um, I got my training at New York University for undergrad and then graduate school at Tulane University. Um, I've been doing research with mild traumatic brain injury for 10 years, uh, closely affiliated with or uh, directly under uh, Virginia Commonwealth University and uh, the McGuire VA in Richmond. Excellent. Well, tell us how you got interested in uh, uh, in in uh, in the you know the RTMS the uh, and and exactly what that is as mm-hmm. we were talking before the podcast and and I didn't have it exactly down. Sure. So um, RTMS uh, stands for repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, it's repetitive because uh, we're doing multiple. Uh, uh, multiple stimulations per second. Um, you can either do a single pulse of magnet, uh, magnetism or you know, multiple pulses. So that's, what's repetitive. It's called transcranial because it goes across the cranium. Um, it's magnetic. And you know what that is stimulation, um, because we're actually activating neural tissue through induction. So, um, you may remember from physics class that if you, um, have a magnetic field that's moving in a certain direction, it can induce um, an electrical current going um, in the perpendicular direction. So that's that's how, and, and neurons, as you know, are electrically activated or active. So that's how we um, induce brain activity. Um, and it's also called non-invasive because we don't have to actually, um, you know, implant electrodes, do surgery, anything like that. And we can um, change the way that the, the brain is activated. Um, and your other question, so how did I get interested in this? Um, well, TMS, so I mentioned I, I do cognitive neuroscience. TMS is a tool 
that's used to induce um, what's called virtual lesions. So um, you can use TMS to um, say inactivate the cortex much in the same way as maybe a focal brain injury would. And then you can study how that part of the brain would contribute to the psychological process that you're interested in. So, um, so that's, it's a very interesting uh, tool for that. You don't have to, as I mentioned, you know, you don't have to cause any uh, injuries, but you can do human research that's kind of analogous to maybe what you might do in animals. Um, and I got interested in this as um, an application for TBI because um, this may seem kind of far afield, but I was at a conference and I saw a presentation on how they were using TMS and TDCS to um, prevent seizures and epilepsy. So using EEG to detect you know, when a seizure might happen and then using non-invasive brain stimulation to try to prevent it. Um, so I, I may not have mentioned before, but the primary uh, technique that I use in my research is EEG. Um, and I think everyone's probably familiar with that. Um, maybe you've at least uh, heard of it. And um, so, so uh, I have done some research with mild traumatic brain injury and signals in EEG, and I thought maybe we could somehow combine what we know about how mild traumatic brain injury affects the EEG to then drive brain stimulation as a potential therapy. So that was the far uh, background for why I uh, decided to do this study. And in terms of your use of RTMS in the study, if I if my memory is correct, uh, it's been successfully used uh, uh, for depression. There's a pretty good literature out there, um, and you were looking more specifically at um, at uh, people's uh, ability to think, to uh, attend, to you know re remember things, uh, you know, just to function a little bit better. Mm -hmm. are, were you, are you using the RTMS to sort of stimulate the brain to fire more, or are you using it to? Uh, sometimes I think it's used to sort of cause part of the brain not to fire as much to force the other side of the brain to to work more. I was wondering how exactly you were using it. Uh, yeah, so we used um, 10 hertz stimulation, which is considered high frequency, and high frequency stimulation is um, it's activating rather than inactivating. So uh, what you were describing, we were attempting to in increase the activity of the cortex under where we were stimulating, which was um, the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Um, and the idea there was that in a previous study, we um, observed that in chronic mild traumatic brain injury, there tends to be an increase in slow wave activity in that part of the brain. Um, and that's been replicated in other research, not just ours, but, um, and uh, an increase in slow frequency activity in the resting state is not very well understood, but we hypothesize that that might be due to um, a decrease in input to the cortex. So other situations where you have um, an increase in slow waves um, are sleep. And also um, when there's an a, a experimental injury that separates the cortex from the rest of the brain, so you get an increase in slow wave activity. Um, so we were hypothesizing that perhaps there's a lack of input to the cortex and by increasing stimulation or by stimulating the cortex and increasing activity might be able to counteract that. Have you been surprised by any of the findings so far? 
anything kind of coming off left field at you? Anything worth coming? Um, yeah, yeah. So um, should I, I well, the most surprising thing was that we were anticipating, like I said, that um, the slow wave activity would decrease when, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, would decrease when we were uh, stimulating um, immediately after stimulation because that's what's been seen in the literature and some other studies. Although, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do TMS, so we're really still figuring out, you know, what intensity and how long and in what pattern to create the um, outcome that you want. But um, yeah, so we, we did not observe that. Um, we observed instead something that was totally surprising, which was um, about a week after stimulation, the delta activity, slow wave activity um, was, was way elevated. So we did not anticipate that. And that was, and that was due to stimulation because we did a uh, randomized controlled trial that was sham controlled um, within subject, meaning everyone had a period in which they had you know, the placebo TMS and a period in which they had active TMS. So this Delta increase only occurred after the active stimulation, whether it was received during the first week of the study or during the third week after washout. You know, and, and so yeah, that was surprising. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's very interesting. And looking over the <laughs> manuscript, no, no, it's it's, uh, and this is what we're here for. We're here to make it fun, and and, and so people <laughs> understand it. No, for sure. So the RTMS is obviously considered a, as a therapeutic option for TBI. But in looking at some of the uh, the data here in this manuscript, there wasn't a whole lot of improvement in the cognition, but there were improvements in other symptoms of mm -hmm. post concussive syndrome. Could you elaborate on that? Yes. Um, so RTMS is approved as a therapy for depression and for obsessive compulsive disorder. For TBI, oh, yeah. it's still, um, uh, you know, it's, it's not considered the standard of care. Um, but as you, I, and that's due to the fact that there just isn't a lot of research yet. Um, but as you observed, yeah, we did not find an effect in cognition. So that was the main outcome of the study is we were hoping that, um, that along with the changes in slow waves, we were hypothesizing that, you know, we would see an, an increase in the ability to engage attention. So um, th uh, the, um, th there's literature on slow waves that uh, indicates that they might relate to a decline in, in vigilance. So as you, you know, start to get bored, stop paying attention, you also have an increase in slow waves. Um, so yeah, we were hypothesizing that there would be a main effect in attention um, and that didn't happen, but, and it didn't, and we didn't see any effects in any of the other neuropsychological measures that we looked at either. We did see practice effects. So that's important, you know, to keep in mind, you know, when you're looking at studies that aren't uh, randomly controlled, that you know, practice effects do occur. So, um, you know, you can see benefits that aren't really there just because people get better at the test. Um, but we did see an improvement in symptoms. So in the, um, in, in post-concussive symptoms, in sleep, in executive function and depression, we did see significant improvement in symptoms with active stimulation. And we also saw the same pattern across all of the different symptom measures that we included in the study. Um, it just wasn't, uh, they weren't all significant. And this actually was a pretty small study for a randomized controlled trial. Um, but 
but um, you know, so that's probably why we we didn't have significance across all of them. But yeah, so um, kind of like you know what's been seen for depression, it's it seems to be effective for for uh, different emotional psychological symptoms. And I so think they have some a, benefit. Mm -hmm. That's a huge takeaway for a lot of our our listeners out there. <laughs> and, but I had it brought up a, a, another question here. So. So this has been around for a while in diff different areas and in different different contexts and stuff. Um, and I imagine there's probably some some other researchers out there using this. But have you, is your you and your team on the study have you identified sort of a standing excuse me oh, I'm sort of tongue tied this morning, a standard dose and duration for the treatment? Have you experimented with going up and down and over or anything anything like that? No, we haven't. Um, so we use the the off the shelf with you know protocol that's used to treat depression. We didn't do it as much as you might do for a you know a clinical therapy for depression, but we use the same um, you know pattern of stimulation. Okay. So um, so no, but that's an excellent question because um, that would be kind of a next step um, once we've established that we can um, change the out some of the outcomes that we're interested in. So. Um, EEG activity and symptoms, um, then the next step would be to try to really pin down what um, protocol works best and to get a predictable outcome. Yeah, you took the, the question right out of my mouth. I was going to ask you, <laughs> yeah. you know, what do you what do you foresee as future research opportunities with this? I mean, where, um, else, where else could it yeah. go? She'll be, yeah, please. That's that that's one of the number one things. Um, I think we need to to try to um, validate some of the things that came out since I said that uh, we were surprised by that late uh, elevation in, in delta power and slow wave activity. So that has not been observed before that I'm aware of. Usually when you, um, when, when uh, researchers have seen changes in delta power, it's um, immediately after stimulation um, so it would be important to validate just that that actually is a real effect. And, um, also the, uh, that change in Delta power was, um, not significantly, but it was, um, suggestively related to the symptom improvement. So the more people's depression symptoms reduced, the, the more the, that Delta power elevation, the, the greater was that Delta power elevation. So that also should be validated and studied in more detail. Um, there's a, another angle where, um, so the, this, uh, so changes in slow waves are not just um, related to a lack of input to the cortex. They're also related to um, recovery from, from stroke. So in the short, period after a stroke, you may have an increase in slow wave activity, which is some people, you know, think that always seeing an increase in Delta is a bad thing, but, um, later in the recovery process, uh, an elevation in slow wave activity is related to a recovery of function. So, and, and also these, uh, these Delta waves can be associated with a uh, changes with genetic variations, which change the um, BDNF, the brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So um, kind of all, all of that's pointing to there may be a change in neuroplasticity after we do the RTMS. And it's long-lived, relatively long-lived, you know, a week or maybe even more. 
So um, that needs to be studied as well. So that at this point is a hypothesis that came out of this um, research that we would need to test further. So there's different ways that we could look at that, um, you know, testing specifically neuroplasticity using TMS itself. Um, and we can also look at how um, BDNF levels might affect this. But um, the, the cool implication of that is that if you can induce this kind of window of plasticity, um, it might be something that you could combine with other therapies to make them more effective. And um, the, one of the things that uh, you know, I, I think would be great if we could do for brain injuries of all severities, but mild is the one I work in, is if we could maybe get the, get the brain back into a state where it can learn again, um, sort of like stem cells, you know, uh, that you know, if you can increase this um, uh, neuroplasticity, perhaps it would be um, a, a brain state that's more able, more pliable, more able to relearn functions. So cognitive functions would be the uh, one idea. So you could do cognitive rehab with this. No, that's a but lot that's of, way down the road. Yeah, no, no, yeah. it's this is good stuff. Uh, you're doing really well. I mean, that's not, even I'm understanding this now. I mean, this awesome. is awesome. And if I'm understanding, I know our listeners are. We got into the whole PFC thing last time. Yes, I was a private first class back in the day. <laughs> yeah. I was I was what you call soup. And it took uh, it took some peers, the E4 Mafia and a good NCO support channel to set private Gatlin straight. Even as yeah. an officer, it still took the same thing. But I figured it out eventually. So if I'm getting it, these guys out there are getting it. Awesome. What you got, Ron? Yeah, I um. So I was wondering. So, you know, you you did the intervention for a week. You know, so I I I would uh. This probably I guess uh, I don't know proof of concept or you know what would be the the best description because typically a, a full out intervention probably be longer than a week. So, mm -hmm. you know, I was wondering on the cognitive side because that's really uh, you know your findings are basically affirming what previous research has found. And then on the cognition part, you, you know, overall, you're not really seeing signal to noise. And what, uh, what that means, uh, you know, for everyone is, is seeing some benefit above sort of the random error, random distribution of just how people generally do, you know, are you seeing a little bit of signal that this could potentially be helpful? One of the things that jumped out at me in the scores is that people, overall people's cognitive scores were, fam were fairly uh, average. In other words, they weren't showing large degrees of impairment. And I've had this happen in my research studies uh, where, you know, you're, you know, you have a, uh, inclusion criteria of people that's somewhat wide and you're hoping that people who are lower uh, uh, functioning will will join the study and you wind up having people that uh, you know of uh, you know who are fairly high functioning actually uh, uh, getting into the study as well I, I was wondering if uh, if you and this would not be something that you would normally do uh, off the bat um, I was wondering if you had taken a peek at you know you had 20 28 people in if you looked at the bottom 14 performers who maybe were, you know, below average or quite a bit below average as compared to the people who were a little higher functioning, if you saw any difference in cognitive performance in those groups? Yeah, um, that's a great idea. I haven't looked at subgroups of cognitive function yet. Um, I did wonder about that issue of, you know, ceiling performance um, mm -hmm. like you did. Uh, 
So that will be something I'll definitely look at. Um, I will just comment that um, in the literature, it's um, it seems that perhaps some of the, if not all of the benefit in the depression groups and um, is due to an alleviation of depression. Um, so there are studies in severe TBI and they do have, um, they do have significant cognitive deficits and we don't see improvement in those studies either. So if you don't have, and then, and then there's other studies where you have TBI and depression combined and you do have some improvement there. So the idea may be that um, it, it's really primarily effective for the symptoms, which, you know, once that is, uh, once that's treated, then the cognitive uh, problems improve, but the cognitive problems that we're dealing with with traumatic brain injury are different. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the whole piece of depression, uh, it's an area that I've, you know, written uh, a lot about, uh, you know, such a cardinal feature of depression is sort of negative thinking, being self-critical. And, you know, I think for uh, a lot of, uh, you know, veterans and all uh, men are not generally men, men are not always the best at knowing what depression is or, or being able to detect it. Um, and, um, you know, but if you get the depression treated, a lot of time you'll see the, the person's perception of their abilities and their other symptoms just lessen quite a bit. And, and so, you know, one of the things I would just, that jumps out from here is, uh, you know, this treatment, it's not a first line treatment for depression, but if medications and a lot of things aren't working, you know, this potentially could be a route that would not only uh, improve depression, but also improve how you perceive all the other things that are going on in your life. It's, it, it really is a stepping stone to really getting a, a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's true. And um, also, in this group, so we saw improvement also in subjective cognitive functioning. So, and that was the you know main inclusion criterion as far as cognition goes for this study. So, if that is something that someone is dealing with, um, you know, and and that's probably way more common than saying, well, I know that I have a you know below average score on the waist or whatever. Um, then this this might be something if other therapies have not panned out or for whatever reason, you know, that might be, you know, personality, something that might be an option for people. So PCS, subjective cognitive function, in addition to depression. Um, and it's, it's also very interesting because I learned in, you know, reading after having done this study is that this part of the brain is involved in, um, Motive, the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is involved in motivation and volition and all of those things are really, I mean, obviously that's going to be good for depression if you can intervene there, but um, it, it may also be important for um, brain health in general because of, you know, this is kind of wild, far field thing, but um, it, you know, when, when, uh, when people do exercise therapy, or when they do animals with do exercise therapy, if they if the animals are actually running under their own volition, you get more brain plasticity than if they're just being exercised by the researchers. So um, engaging these systems of motivation and volition can be very beneficial for symptoms, but it might also link to this, you know, improvement in brain health in general. So that's something we want to study going forward. 
the, the brain health is uh that's a kind of a key theme that's popped up in the past on some of these some of these podcasts it you know the the mental the physical you know the emotional there's an overlap there you know and, and, and you have to look at the concentric circles and everybody's different you know wherever you you fall you know in that in that overlap but the the mind is something that that needs to be exercised as well you know you can do push-ups and sit-ups all day and some folks can't but they can still exercise the mind I, uh, I had more of an observation, which I thought was interesting, not, not so much of a question, but a lot of our, our listeners out there and a lot of veterans in general, at least the ones that I, I've been around, are, they're not suspicious of the pills, but they're tired of the pills. You know, here's a pill, make you feel better, you know, deal with the side effects. You have to stay on the regimen. It creates all kinds of problems. But something like this, you know, when you, you look at the economics of it and the potential, you know, the, the savings of cost to be able to take a, a device to create, you know, a, a type of uh, exterior stimulation, you know, to the brain that, that, you know, obviously it's not yet anyway, not yet showing huge cognitive improvement, but it's able to address some of the symptomatology that's, that's associated mm -hmm. with TBI, as we discussed, like the depression, uh, you know, the fatigue, you know, sleep, sleep issues like that. So, so I guess in, in, in that context, I mean, what should veterans or, or our listeners sort of take away from, from this mm -hmm. research? Um, well, a, a couple of things I wanted to say. So we did see it some clue that there might be some cognitive improvement because we did also measure. So not in the neuropsychological functioning, but this is not in the paper. So it's oh, just, hey, you know, inside scoop here. extra <laughs> stuff. But um, yeah, so we also measured event related potentials while people were doing an attention task. And those did seem to change after um, stimulation, but I haven't done all the statistics on that. So there's some clue, although behavior didn't change, there's some clue that we are actually changing some of the cognitive systems, but not to the point that um, it's changing behavior. So I'll say that. And then your point about the pharmaceuticals. So there's no, um, there's no pharmaceutical that can, that is has been shown to improve cognitive right. function. So that's really not an option. And, you know, side effects obviously are going to be a problem with that. TMS is like um, Ron mentioned, you know, it's not first line treatment. Um, cognitive rehabilitation therapy is first line treatment for this. Um, but if that, you know, doesn't work for some reason, or if someone's interested in trying, then, you know, these, these uh, systems are getting more and more available all the time. It, it could be an option. Um, and the side effects are, you know, there's no side effects. So, um, you know, I'm not a clinician. So I'd say, you know, the takeaway is, you know, you might want to go learn about RTMS therapy for depression, um, talk to your doctor about it. Um, but then also be aware that there's a lot of research going on to try to, um, you know, like I was saying, reopen a window of learning in the brain. So, you know, there's promise there in brain stimulation. So we're working towards that goal. No, that's uh, that's a that's a big takeaway out there. And, you know, to echo your, your your comments, yes, there is no there's no one one cure, one size pill that does it all. But a lot of our, our listeners and myself included, when I when I was hurt years ago, you go through these these regimens you know, of, of this and this, and sometimes people aren't talking and you already have a TBI. TBI could be, you know, as I pointed out in some of the past episodes, a secondary injury behind a more primary life-threatening injury. So TBI doesn't get addressed in, in the real time, the short time, and it just, it creates a lot of problems mm -hmm. and you just compound it, compound it, compound it. But this is really compelling stuff. I, uh, it's been, it's been fun reading it. And I mean, this is, this is cutting edge. I mean, this is a way that 
we may be able to, or through through research and a lot of hard work, to to find a product that we can put out there to to the masses that they can use to not only alleviate symptoms, but you know, hopefully improve uh, cognition in, in various places for sure. And the other thing too is, I mean, there's 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 no doubt. So you try something new, and if it doesn't yeah. work, it doesn't work. And there's Absolutely. you know, I mean, that's that's research. Um, well, I, I know we're uh, just about out of time, um, Laura. We're going to provide a link uh, to your uh, to your research manuscript uh, along with uh, this podcast, uh, as well as I think uh, maybe some additional resources on uh, RTMS and uh, what it's all about. Uh, um, what's one final thought that you would uh, like to, to to leave listeners with? Well, I, you know, what I just said uh, about, you know, keeping, uh, keeping hope open that this will end up being something that could become a beneficial therapy as we study it. Um, that's, that's the message I want to leave everybody with. No, no winning lot of numbers to go with it. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> we'll, we'll take all the help we can get here. You know, I mean, we're, we're, uh, yeah, anyway. Hey, well, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Um, we've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I, me too. And I think a lot of our listeners uh, came away with some really strong takeaways today. Um, and did a great job, by the way, of breaking it down. I mean, I, this is some complex stuff when I first saw it. And as I said a while ago, I understand it. So thank you once uh -huh. again for being with us and uh, best of luck in your, in your research to, to you and your team. Wish you the best. And we look forward to having you back on the show soon. I'd be curious to see where we are at this time next year and, and let's do it again. So thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you all today and get the, get the word out. Absolutely. You have a great day. <laughs> you too. Bye. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up yet another episode of the abstract veteran series with uh, myself, Char Gatlin and my co-host, Dr. Ron Seal. And our gang at the top that remains unseen, that keeps the machine churning out these podcasts, uh, the Colonel, Miss AC, and obviously Ron up top in the box. So from all of us to you, uh, enjoy the day, be safe, and we will see you next time. Look forward to tuning in again. Have a nice day. Thank you to Dr. Laura Manning-Frank for joining Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Seal today on the Abstract Doctors podcast special, The Abstract Veterans Series. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. The Abstract Doctors is produced by The Abstract Athlete. For more information, please visit theabstractathlete.com. And as always, follow us on all of our social media platforms under The Abstract Doctors and The Abstract Athlete. The office is now closed, but join us for a next appointment soon. Mm -hmm.